Well, I'm so glad to be with you all this evening. I want to invite you to turn in a Bible to the book of Mark. That's in the second half of your Bible. While you're turning there, if you're about to swipe there on your phone, you might, whoop, you might want to Google Covey the band, right? Covey? Covey. Shout out to Covey. That's Covenant's creative uh, outfit. Uh, he gigs in and around town here, there, and elsewhere. So before you turn or swipe to Mark, you might want to check out what Covey's up to. And while you're turning, I want to remind you that we are in our series of our core practices. Since we've become the neighborhood church a few years ago, we begin the year looking at how we intend to live our life with God together. And the truth is that as you look, we might have these special and unique icons that are unique to us, but really every Jesus-following church has their own language and way of saying the same kinds of things. You might see on our first two, we talk about following Jesus. And then last week, we talked about where that cute little house is, loving neighbor. That's really just our way of saying the great commandment, to love God with everything and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. One of the ways we talked about that last week was this. You know that the love of God is working in you when the love of neighbor is flowing out of you. So everything begins and ends with that little cross to be connected to the source of love, to be connected to life with a capital L. And when you are attentive, when you've given yourself over to God, revealed in Jesus as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, you know that that love is transforming and forming and working in you when our second core practice is flowing out of you. And last week we explored that because Jesus has rezoned our neighborhood, everyone we encounter is now a neighbor to be loved. And when we encounter neighbor and we love them regardless of their race, background, ethnicity, orientation, status, fill in the blank, we're not just loving them. We're not just serving them. What we're doing is core practice three. We want to invite them into the kingdom family. So if the first two core practices are our remix version of the greatest commandment, our third core practice, growing disciples, is our way of saying the great commission, which is what Jaron read earlier and which is what informs our third core practice, which sounds like this. We commit to invite people. We don't just commit to people. My bad. That's my typo. We commit to, ready, invite people into a relationship with Jesus by baptizing, teaching, and sending them on mission. That language should sound familiar because that's what Jesus says in his parting words to his ragtag group of followers to say, okay, keep following me, go out and love your neighbor, but as you go to all people, to everyone, everywhere, baptize them into the family name, plunge them into this life of God, and then teach them to do what you're doing, following Jesus together. And then by the way, part of following Jesus together is not just to stay cozy here in these seats, 
but continue to go out and find new neighbors to invite them in to a relationship with Jesus. That's what we're after. Now, you might say, well, how are we doing this? I like to think of what's happening at the far end of the hall as the neighborhood kids building a foundation to a house. What's happening back there, and you know it if you spent any time with the kids that have grown up in this church, is we are trying to lay a foundation that is rooted in the stories of God and the nature of God. I'm telling you, from our preschoolers to our fifth graders, they know unequivocally that God is love. They know unequivocally that they are loved. And they know the stories of God's people. And so we try to lay this foundation, reminding them that they are God's beloved. And so then you move to the middle room where our students gather before our services. And what we're doing is upon that foundation, now we're trying to put up the frame of the house. We're trying to put up the frame that helps to secure their identity in Christ and show them a livable faith. Because as we talked about in our first week, our faith is not just meant to be believed, it's meant to be lived. Yes, we want our students to make a confession and say, Jesus, we believe you are Lord, but we also want them to live their lives accordingly. Because it's one thing to say that Jesus is Lord and it's a wholly other thing to be a disciple or an apprentice to follow him. And so we lay a foundation with the kids' ministry. We build up a frame of the house that says, this is sturdy. You can build a life on this, on who Jesus is and what Jesus says. And then the rest of our life as we grow disciples together is to fill out that house, to be formed and filled as a committed community of disciples, connecting more people and staying connected to one another. We are following Jesus together. Because when Jesus says, love others, when Paul says, bear with others, pray for others, forgive others, you need, ready? Others. Jesus calls us into relationship simultaneously with him. And then you look around and realize there are other apprentices, other disciples along for the journey. And what we're going to see tonight in Mark 6, in the most recorded miracle in the Gospels, is not just an amazing display of Jesus' compassion and power, but a very relatable display of how those others and those disciples still have room to grow. So raise your hand if you're a disciple of Jesus, but you still have room to grow. Yes and amen. So what I want to do this evening is to look at this powerful scene of a powerful and compassionate master who entrusts his power and his way to a bunch of folks like us that are just trying to figure it out and live it out. And I hope that as we talk about growing disciples, you'll understand that there is always room and grace for you and I to grow as well. So would you just take a deep breath again, just settle in, and maybe this time instead of following along on the screen, 
or following along with the Bible in front of you, maybe you can close your eyes and hear these words and imagine this scene as it unfolds. Jesus had earlier sent out these disciples to go and do a little precursor to the Great Commission. Go out in my authority. Cast out darkness. Shine the light. And so they come back eager, excited. They gather around Jesus and they say, you won't believe it, Jesus. We did what you did. We said what you say. Imagine as we read in a moment, what did Jesus' face look like as he hears their breathless report of a lived faith? And then hear his voice as we read in a moment. Invite them into the boat to go and refuel and recharge. Only to find a multitude on the other side with more need and more need for growth. What will they do? What will you hear? Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus, and they reported to him all they had done and taught. And then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, hey, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them, and they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Verse 35. But by this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him and said, uh, uh, this is a remote place, and it's already very late. So send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, uh, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples. He gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And he also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had eaten was 5,000. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, thanks be to God. 
I want to show you a brief video from a couple girls who are a lot younger then than they are now. Take a look on the screen and then we'll talk about it. Hang on, we have audio. Let's see if we can get it going. There we go. Huh? Can you start it over, Sherry? Can you start it over? There we go. All right, now we have audio because I'm sorry, I need to hear these. Hey, Nora, what you been doing? Fixing this car. I'm her helper. What's the name of your mechanic shop? Um, It's going to go. Huh? Nora's shop of cards. Nora's shop of cards. What tools are you using under there? Um, nails. Nails? A hammer. Where's your drill, Nora? Show me what you've been doing for the last few minutes. Get up under there and do it. She uses that one the most, so she puts it in there. Yeah. What do you need? Right there. Um, the hammer and the bed thingy. The, the what? The hammer? Bed. 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 The bed. bed. The doll bed. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Can you, can you do the brakes and the oil while you're under there? I can do it. You gotta drain the oil. Yeah, I know. We already drained the oil at first. You did it? Yeah, you did. Oh, girl. <coughs> but I'm gonna try out the brakes. Hey, right, Nora, what you been go. doing? Emma and Nora. Fixing and Nora's shop of cars. I'm her helper. What's the All name right. of your What did we just shop? see? We saw two little girls with a doll house Jeep. Lifted up on two baby doll cribs. We saw all of their tools. Nora on her back. Emma as the helper. They had the tools they needed like nails. Like you do on a car. (laughs) They had Barbie beds. They had little drills. If you were to go and look at it again. You'll notice that when the Barbie bed gets up under the car. And the drill is pressing it up there. Nora has to look back as if to say. You seeing this dude? What we see is two little girls. Pretending. Playing. But you have to remember why. Because you ask what did they see? That same week. Years ago. They saw their dad. And Robert Vaughn in their driveway, with our van lifted up, with Robert sliding under there, and me, just like Emma, saying, do you need any nails? (laughs) This is a silly and sweet example of what is happening when we're talking about growing disciples in two ways. The first is that there are people that are watching you. There are people, maybe as little as Emma and Nora, observing how you do what you do. They are observing how you respond to other people. They are observing how you respond to stressful situations. 
They are observing how you really actually practice what you preach. They're observing in that way what you actually value. They're not only hearing the words you say, they're hearing how you say it. And if some of you are sitting there thinking, well, I don't have little Emma's and Nora's children running around, I would say to you, okay, so you have friends, you have coworkers, you have family members, you have someone in your life observing, excuse me, observing you. And all of these observations gathered from all these different apprentices of Jesus, which is what a disciple is, are filling in an image of what Jesus looks like and what it means to follow him. Which is why a church is really only as healthy as its disciples Because we can say all the right things in our preaching. We can sing and proclaim all the right things in our worship. But if we go out there and our observable lives don't look like, smell like, or sound like the one we claim to follow, we are not faithful disciples. We're sticking nails under cars. (laughs) That's the first thing. Someone is watching. The second thing that we learn is that there is grace to grow. Now, Emma and Nora, I don't think, can slide under a car yet and change the brakes and the rotors. I wish they could because the van needs it again. (laughs) But what they can do is grow because disciples are lifelong learners. And disciples are lifelong followers. And Jesus understands this, and he understands this with the first batch of disciples, that they can in one instant go out and in his authority cast out demons and heal disease and come back breathlessly and say, you'll never believe it, we did what you did because discipleship is being with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to go and live like Jesus, And Jesus goes, yes, you're doing it. Come away with me on the boat. Let's go over here. And more people come. And an opportunity is presented for more of the reign of God, more power. They had just witnessed incredible things. And when it's the moment to show compassion and do another incredible thing, the disciples go, we can't do this. Which is an implicit declaration that Jesus, you can't do this. This is going to take half a year's wages. This is going to take way too much time, way too much energy, way too much effort. And I believe that Jesus not only had compassion on the crowd to give them something to eat, I think Jesus had compassion on his disciples to invite them into an opportunity to continue to learn and continue to follow. And basically, Jesus gives us grace to say, let me do it again. Let me show you again. I think there's this misconception that it's all about believing it and not living it. 
I think there's this misconception that it's about going to heaven and not partnering in the kingdom work on earth. And if it, it means disciples are lifelong learners and they're lifelong followers, it means that we are living in an ongoing relationship, learning as we go. And little by little, the more we stay connected to him and the more we follow his invitations to step out in faith, the more we realize that we can put away the nails and continue to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. But this invites us to first rethink our trajectory of growth. You see, many of us think that the disciples and ourselves are just up and to the right. That we can let go of this hurt, let go of this hang up, let go of this habit. I've licked it. I've figured it out. Next. But the reality, the lived experience, we've got to admit, looks more like the yellow line that's curly and curved. And we realize that our journey with Jesus is one of disorientation and reorientation. You see, the disorientation is just like what we saw with the disciples, that they forget that Jesus is there to teach them and show them again how the reign of God is come on earth as it is in heaven. We experience it when we wake up the next morning and we deny by our lifestyle the goodness and grace that we learned yesterday. But I wrote Isaiah 30, 15 to 18 there, which is a reminder as old as Israel that in repentance and rest is your salvation. And so there's grace to grow because the disciples didn't know how they would meet this challenge. But Jesus still invited them to trust and rest. And so our growth is one of a disorientation but the degree to which we reset or repent our face and our feet toward Jesus, he will show us grace and keep walking with us. In our church, the growing of disciples is a contact sport. It's a community engagement. And I think that COVID showed us that we just won't do it by default. We just can't rely on the way it used to be. We must be intentional in our life together. There's this passage in Ephesians where Paul says that be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So understand this. The Holy Spirit that is within me is within you, and so there is some connection that is there that there is a divine tethering and we belong to one another so we don't have to drum it up. But just like that little plant in our third core practice icon, it does require a cultivation. Community requires a cultivation. And so I think we need to understand that because all of us are in this kind of loop-de-loop, -loop, some of us are going to be mourning and some of us are going to be disoriented. So we need others of us to come alongside of us and call us back up. We need people in our lives that are speaking truth to us, that are listening well to us, that are asking good questions of us. 
We need people that are intentionally praying and interceding for us. So the question then becomes, like the disciples gathered around Jesus, who are your companions on the journey? Who's watching you and who are you watching? Because there's going to come a moment when I'm confused and I need reorientation. Would you speak encouragement and love to me? So maybe a practical practice this week is who are you going to text from within this community? Who are you going to reach out to? Who are you going to sit down and play dominoes with? Y'all know I love dominoes and Amy hates it. Who's going to play dominoes with me? Community is something that is cultivated and grown. We're called not just to relationship with Jesus, but with Jesus' disciples. So they return, and Jesus invites them to recharge. Before all of this great banquet, they have just a hot minute. They didn't even have a chance to eat, and they're in the boat. He asks them to come away for a while. Understand that growth in discipleship is not just a matter of doing Jesus stuff. It's following Jesus's rhythm of being as well. Disciples, you and I, we live in a culture with the rhythm that feels like this. You ready? Driven achievement and then numbing out. Here's what it looks like. Getting beat down all day with work or stress or whatever you got going and so you collapse at night in front of your phone or Netflix. And I should have said we because that's me as well. And you know that numbing out isn't a healthy disengagement because we wake up tired the next day. And I just feel like some of you, you might say, my schedule's not that busy. And I would say disciples live in a culture of busyness of heart. Our hearts are restless. Our hearts are looking for the next fix. And we find our rest when we find our rhythm that Jesus regularly withdrew to go and recharge. But we don't withdraw to recharge because we also live in a culture instilling a narrative of never enough. You never have enough stuff, so keep consuming. Not recharging, consuming. We live in a culture that instills a narrative of you never are enough. So to go back to the very beginning to say, well, how do we do this as a church and to use our kids and our student ministry as another example? Well, we build a foundation that tells our kids from the moment they can understand language that they are enough and beloved and made in the image of God. Because they will walk out the door and they'll go to their schools or they'll go into toxic, unhealthy relationships and hear that they're not enough, so they need to try harder. Or they're not enough and they'll never be enough. And they're not enough and so we cultivate shame. Not here, not here. And then we do the same as we build a frame of the house and we tell our students that when you give your life to Jesus, he gives you his life in return. And it's going to be a loop-de-loop and it's going to feel imperfect, but you have what you need to live and love well. We want our kids to know they are enough. We want our students to know that they have enough. They have what they need to know the abundance 
of grace and goodness. And so disciples instead are called to Jesus' rhythm of restorative rest that overflows into compassionate action. This is why our kids and our students come with us like they did last night as we fed neighbors and broke bread together over tortilla chips and taco soup. This is why our kids will do overflow style days this summer to go and learn the rhythm of Jesus. But not just in doing, but you can't do rightly if you're not connected to the source of love and remembering that you are beloved, to rest in that. It's this rhythm of restorative rest that recharges our batteries so that we can go step back out into the world and act with compassion. When Jesus saw the crowd, he saw an enormous bit of need. But he had compassion on them and greeted them because he was like a sheep. They were like sheep without a shepherd. There was this rabbinic. Y'all know rabbinic? It's just a fancy word for rabbis. Y'all know what a rabbi is? They're a Jewish teacher. There was this expectation in Jesus' day that the one who was promised to come would feed manna in the wilderness to God's people, just like Moses when they were in the wilderness. So Jesus has the crowd sit. There was this expectation that the promised king would not only satisfy the needs of his people just like God did in the great deliverance in the Exodus, but that he would lead them out of the wilderness like a shepherd. And you can look in places like Ezekiel and 2 Kings when kings were not ideal shepherds. They fed themselves, not the sheep. They cared about their own needs, not the sheep. And so the rabbinic expectation, the religious leaders got together and said, one day there will be a king that feeds us. One day there will be a king that leads us. What does the crowd see when they were watching Jesus? They saw a compassionate shepherd that shows them, in me there is more than enough. But the disciples needed to see that as well. The disciples still have more to learn. And what they need to learn is that Jesus never runs out of what we need. You see, the disciples get on-the-job training for a job designed to not be done alone. You see, when you're training somebody to clean a toilet, it's because you don't want to clean the toilet anymore, right? You say, here's how you do it. I'll do it. You watch. Spray the Lysol. Scrub it out. Wait. Flush. Scrub it again. Whatever you're doing. You say, got it? Good. Now you do it, and I watch. Good. Got it? And then the third phase, the glorious third phase, a long way from the video I showed earlier of those little girls, I'm really almost close to them being old enough to do this, and then it's a dream because I'll say, you got it, see ya, and I never have to do it again. The disciples is more like this. No, we'll do it together. Is it messy? Yes. 
Does it need to be done routinely? Yes. You might do it alone, but I don't want you to. God has given us this rescue mission and asked that we do this together. The disciples not only get the -the on-the-job training, but it's for a job that was always designed to be done with the master. We read the Great Commission earlier. And don't miss that before he said, go and be my witnesses, he said, there is a withness to this mission. I will be with you always. He still calls us to go. He still entrusts us to do the work. And he gives us what we need when we need it. You see, it kind of looks like this in this scene. The disciples come and say, look at all these people. We don't have enough. They look like this stick figure on the far left. They say, we don't have enough. We don't have enough money for them to go buy it. Oh, by the way, y'all know how big an average village was in their time? Hundreds? The biggest village was probably 3,000. The biggest cities in that region were probably 15,000. So if they're in the sticks in the wilderness, even if they had a half year's wages, even if they had, what, $30,000 to pay for dinner, they couldn't go to enough villages to find enough bread and fish. So the disciples come to Jesus like this person on the far left. And they said, we don't have it. We can't buy it. We can't do this job. But Jesus gives the disciples an opportunity to actually live out a kingdom of enough. Which moves them to the second, the middle stick figure. What's that guy doing? I drew this with my mouse cursor, so I'm glad that works. He is karate kicking a step that's not there. Do you understand that the next scene, after the disciples say, there's no way to do it, Jesus says, you give him something. He says, hey, go and see what's out there. And they come back with five loaves and two fish. Which is remarkable because most people in that day, knowing there's no McDonald's for miles, would pack some bread or some dried fish. But this is some kind of either selfish or needy community of people. 5,000 men, we all know if we grew up in Sunday school, they don't count the women and children. So they've got five loaves, two fish, no one packed a lunch, no one can go to McDonald's down the road. And so they say, okay. I guess we'll see. Because Jesus takes these small items, and before he gives them to the crowd, who does he give them to? Eileen said something interesting. He did give it to the Lord. He blessed it. He broke it. And then he gave it to the disciples. They had a choice to make. Am I going to step out in something beyond my resources 
beyond my understanding, and am I going to trust that Jesus gives enough? And so what happens in the blessing and the breaking and then handing it to the disciples is the disciples, with each time they handed it to the next person, and each time the other one went to the next group, and each time the other one went to the next group, they're starting to realize that God is feeding his people in the wilderness again. That God is doing again what was long promised, the one who would come and deliver, the one who would call his sheep like a shepherd and lead them into the green pastures of God. He finally sees with every morsel, with everything, that God has enough and he never runs out of what we need. And so Jesus gives his disciples what they need to grow. Because earlier they thought, how am I going to cast out this demon? And they took a step, and in the name of Jesus, it fled. And they realized, I can actually do this. And then they saw a disease, and they said, how can I do this? And they called on the name of Jesus, and the disease left them. And they said, we can do this. And so then, when they come before him again, Jesus says, are you going to step out and trust, I have what you need, and I didn't run out of what you needed then, so now I'm not going to run out of what you need today. And they hand out the bread. And in the most recorded miracle in all the Gospels, when Jesus says, you give them something to eat, understand this. It does not mean try harder. It means trust me more. Because when I am the stick figure on the left, I come to Jesus and I say, not I can't buy 5,000 Big Macs. I say, I can't resist this temptation. And then Jesus says, I say, keep in step with the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Not try harder, but trust me more that I'll give you what you need when you need it. And find that if I give myself to his way, he gives me what I have not on my own. When I'm the stick figure that says, I can't forgive this person, I hear Jesus say, bless those who persecute you. I hear the voice of the Spirit saying, you don't need to forget, but if you forgive, it enlarges a new possibility of a future for more love and more life. Would you forgive them seven times 77? And I find that if I say, fine, I'll try with your help, I take a step not knowing how that's going to look, but then finding that little by little, by walking with him and entrusting him with each step, what I have to offer gets multiplied in his hands. And so you say, I'm not growing. I would say, don't try harder, but trust more. Stay connected and abide in him. And when you say, fine, what's the step? Try and follow Jesus and trust his way. Lord, I give you my life. Well, would you give him your next decision? Because our life is only lived moment by moment. And so would you give him that step? What's your step? Because at the end of this scene, 
Mark says they all ate and were satisfied. Because earlier we prayed, give us today our daily bread. And so would you pray that tomorrow? And trust that whatever you need tomorrow, moment by moment, keep your eyes peeled and see if he might be offering you daily bread. And it may not be what you want. It probably is not going to be when you want it. But if you keep your eyes peeled in the wilderness, you find that he is walking alongside you. And he is inviting you to do what you can, which is look to him, offer up what you have, as measly as it is, and find that God does what you can't do on your own. That's what we see in discipleship. This is a mantra in our church. We do what we can and let God do what we can't. And as somebody who is familiar with the 12 steps and the serenity prayer, I love that phrase, and grant us the wisdom to know the difference. There are some things that are within our control, and there is a great many things that are not. So grant me the wisdom to know, what can I do today? And what can't I? Let me handle the whole, I'll take a step, I will love, I will look, I will trust, and let's, let's let you handle what I can't. And trust that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called together according to his purpose in our partnership. Because finally, I need you to know that just like these disciples who started by shoving nails up under a car, they learned something that day. They learned that when disciples give what we have, we find what we need. And what we offer gets multiplied in his hands. As we talked about last week, some of the needs and brokenness feel like mountains too big to be moved. But all he is inviting you to do is carry your corner. All he is inviting you to do is take a step. And you might be that stick figure that once you take that step, you see, oh, crud, there's another one. And that's how we grow. That's how we learn. I heard a priest say this week, when it comes down to it, Jesus really doesn't promise that he'll protect us from everything. But he promises he will be with us in all things. And I think there's wisdom, and I think he's right. You might step, and it hurts. You might step, and it feels like you're denying yourself and taking up your cross. But you find that the shepherd is with you, not only in the green pastures, but in the dark valleys, and he is giving you what you need, even if it's not fun, and even if it's not what you want. But may we find that the one who broke the bread gave us his broken body so that all might find life and forgiveness and freedom in him. May you understand that you have grace 
to grow. And when you come before him and you said, just like those disciples, I didn't understand what you're doing. Just like those disciples, I did the wrong thing. Would you hear the words that you're forgiven, that you are beloved, that you belong to a gracious God who is love? And so now the challenge is that you wouldn't just believe it, but that you would walk in it. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, filling and forming you, there is freedom. For the Spirit of God is forming you more and more into the image of Jesus. So may we be a church following Jesus together and find that we are growing more and more to look like him, to be with him, to then go in love like him. We pray that in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Tonight's benediction was written by our kingdom partner serving in Northern Ireland, Aubrey Smith. May our loyalty be to Christ and his unshakable kingdom, and our lives be wholly aligned with his mission. May we grow in teaching God's word faithfully, following Jesus obediently, and serving one another joyfully. May God grant us understanding of how high, how wide, how deep, and how long is God's love for us in Christ Jesus. And may we grow into faithful emissaries of that love in our neighborhoods, our city, our nation, and to the ends of the earth. May the Spirit empower us to bear the cross of risk, rejection, exile, shame, and sorrow as our Savior bore it, so that the world might know his life and joy. May we labor for his kingdom in hope and perseverance with our eyes fixed on Jesus who goes before us. May the light of Christ shine in us as he sends us out. Go in peace. Thanks for staying late. Amen.